My name is Dr. Ruth Mary Allen, and this is my podcast, Brain Health, Unchaining Your Pain. Our world has become a minefield for our children to get the best out of their brain and whole body health, which is why I founded the Wellbeing Warrior Academy to help them navigate this minefield effectively. Right now, if you go to www.wellbeingwarrioracademy.com and use the code PODCAST10, you can get 10% off all programmes. That's www.wellbeingwarrioracademy.com and use the code PODCAST10 at checkout. Now, let's get back to this week's episode of Brain Health, Unchaining Your Pain. Welcome to the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation with the wonderful Dr. Wolfgang Seidel. Welcome to the show, Wolfgang. Thank you so much, Dr. Ruth. I'm looking forward as much to this conversation as you are probably even more. <laughs> so I know we met at the water cooler event and then subsequently at Madwell Summit and had great conversations at both events. And for those that don't know Wolfgang, he is... He leads the workplace health consulting at Mercer, which is a strategic arm of the health business, creating data-driven well-being strategies for organizations around the globe. He's a medical doctor, holds a postgraduate degree in psychiatry, philosophy and society, undertook his business studies focused on return on investment um, models in mental health in the workplace and is accredited counselor and psychotherapist. He's also a member of various organisations in research and advisory boards, and he's a prolific keynote speaker, which is, I know, where, where we met each other at conferences around the globe. So really looking forward to the breadth and depth of experience that you're going to bring to this conversation for so many different angles. Before Likewise, we... and, and I'm grateful to you that you spoke at one of my uh, events as well. Oh, thank you. It was a real pleasure and, uh, and I'm so, so grateful that you invited me. And I know, I know um, uh, before we start, brain health is obviously a passion of both of ours, but I'd love to know for you, in the context of your life's journey, what does optimal brain health mean for you personally? Yes, and I deliberately will leave uh, the psychiatrist um, aside, but for me personally, it's of course having a sharp mind. And that in my context is being able to sprint basically, which means thinking fast and flexibly, adapting to the situation with empathy. And I used to be a champion in sprinting, so it's both for me, it's physical and cognitive. But at the same time, having competed in sprinting, I'm not very competitive actually. So it's about thinking fast in comparison, not with others, but in comparison with my own experience of what fast is, how fast I need to think to get a kick out of it, basically. And I love what I might call mental acrobatics, if that makes sense, the adventure of thought. And that um, is reflected in my work, perhaps, which is about evidence-based science. But I also love um, talking about solving philosophical questions or supporting friends and colleagues and here's that empathy piece again and context that's often overlooked when we simply look into individual 
mental health or cognitive health, which is, of course, a different thing. And um, it's important to think about um, empathy and context when we are putting our brain to good use. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to go back to the sprinting piece. Do you, do you think we are sprinting enough, do, you know, cognitively? in the context of our brain health, if we reflect on the workplace itself? Is that something that people ask, ask people slowing down and just going on a steady state uh, from well, your experience? Or, or are they sprinting too fast that the legs can't keep up with them? Yes, what, what, what a good observation. I think, I think both is true. We are going too slow in the sense sometimes that we don't appeal to people's sense of purpose and their... Um, their personal meaning and therefore not energizing them enough by playing to their natural strength. And uh, that slows people down, of course, because they are trying to read between the lines what's expected of them. On the other hand, there is probably a lot of speed and energy and not always constructive energy in us that some people may call stress or, or, or even burnout. So where uh, expectations are coming so fast left, right, and center, and um, and people are, uh, if you like, sprinting, but without much effect, if you like, because mm-hmm. you know it's a bit if you compare it to um, to to heart arrhythmias, you know, you could have an extremely fast beating heart, but not pumping any blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I guess it's like people are sprinting, but they're not, they're not on a racetrack. <laughs> Yes, absolutely right. And I hasten to add straight away that, of course, uh, my passion for sprinting is not a role model for other people. But also when I say sprinting, I, of course, mean that the most important balance is to then have time to relax because, you know, the essence of stress is not that you are sprinting for a little while. In fact, the meta-analysis of tens of thousands of papers has shown that uh, a short spurt of sprint and energy enhances your immune system. But if you are then not coming back to your equilibrium, uh, then, of course, your immune system gets depleted over time. So the story of of stress is really a story of... um, of spikes and coming back to your equilibrium and a long period and an appropriate period of relaxation. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point because I think we, you know, we often, particularly in certain corporations, as I experienced, are constantly sprinting and there is no opportunity to pause and finish the race because the race is never won until you actually get into your bed. Um, and that can be really detrimental from a performance perspective because people as you say people experience burnout and and overwhelm but before we dive into that I'd love to know what are you passionate about in life right now yeah um, probably um, something funny it's running again and it's running while doing research so I'm combining both my passions and (laughs) I only learned that during lockdown because as I just mentioned I was more of a sprinter and my excuse for not running middle or longer distances was always oh my body is only made for sprinting not for long distance (laughs) but during the lockdowns you know I started running 10k every other day and and then I realized that my mind needs engagement as well while I run and so listening to relevant 
books that are um, research for me was very helpful and also memorizing what I heard while I was running was, was wonderful since we are talking about cognitive health and you couldn't take any notes. You have to run for an hour or so before you could even reflect on, on what you read. And most importantly, I think most people have experienced that for themselves is that when you move, your mind moves with you. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that really occupies my mind with a lot of passion is, of course, uh, a health and well-being inspired employee value proposition. So um, I'm sure we will get to that a bit later, but that's what it looks like in the corporate setting. And that's what my work uh, looks like. And, uh, and that has a lot to do with data, but it has also to do with um, something, a, a title for a presentation I coined uh, in 2002, Stress, Resilience and Psychology of Happiness. It's to do with a cycle of renewal in this day and age. It's to do with optimism and um, even existentialism in, in the world we are living in. I'm just throwing in those things because you allowed me to be passionate. And, <laughs> and that's what I am right now. <laughs> and I, I love the analogy for sprinting um, and also the fact that, that you have this need to combine learning uh, and, and physical activity and there's so many people have shown the benefits of doing both at the same time um, particularly in the context of the neurotransmitters that we generate brain derived neurotrophic factor or BDNF which helps our brain uh, uh, grow uh, and rejuvenate itself which is that rejuvenation piece uh, and really help up from a from a memory perspective and I know it just brought back memories of me running myself in lockdown and how I found it so important when I was running to have something that was constantly allowing me to learn at the same time but I, what I also noticed is when I tell myself certain things when I'm running um, I can run faster so if I've got the right music or the right podcast or whatever it may happen to be that I'm listening to I can actually perform better in my running uh, than if I, I'm, I'm, my mind is busy with neg negative thoughts and negative self-talk, and it really makes a big difference. Yes. Um, purely for me, saying the word well-being warrior uh, in my head whilst I was running, because I'm not a big fan of running, but I, I like to do it because it's challenging, uh, makes me run faster. And it's uh, paradoxical in a way, isn't it? Because by... Uh occupying our minds and being really in the moment and being very engaged with what we are thinking we are kind of oblivious to the mechanics of running itself and that improves our running so there is a story in that somehow I think that uh, over focusing on success and failure in the moment and trying to direct your body that knows what it's doing anyway is, is not very helpful, but being uh, in the moment and being authentic and being engaged uh, with mind and body makes all the difference. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to know what your story story is, what took, what took you from being a young child to being passionate about uh, workplace well-being uh, and, and, and performance in general. Well, how much time have you got? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's an interesting story. I try to sketch it uh, quickly. Uh, I mean, obviously, as you will have all picked up who are listening from my accent, that's an Austrian accent, which I share with, obviously, people like Viktor Frankl and um, 
and Sigmund Freud. So in, in good company there, I suppose. Um, and yet I, I wasn't fed with psychoanalysis, as people may assume that everyone in Austria is. So I grew up in an entrepreneurial household and my father was an architect and had a construction business at the same time. So I grew up on construction sites and I still to this day don't understand why I cannot just walk into any construction site and look what's going on and, and <laughs> chat with people and so on. That's just um, uh, really important to me. And so is architecture and design. And so I remembered when I had to write a little uh, bio for, for Mercer years ago, I remembered suddenly that I was actually giving my first tender presentation at the age of 14. Wow. Uh, my father said, oh, I can't be bothered to go to this uh, bid. It was a government bid for a, a bridge, not a big bridge, but something that we also did uh, apart from building schools and private houses and so on. And I went there as a 14-year-old, um, or maybe I was 14 and a half. So um, it was wonderful, though, and there were all those company directors, and uh, it, it was interesting. And, you know, good news is that we won that bid. I mean, not oh, down to me, but down to what our bid looked like, right, and the, the value <laughs> for money piece. But it just helped me, I suppose, to develop an, a sense of entrepreneurship. It helped me to be comfortable speaking in front of businesses as well. So then I took a big... Uh, not a diversion because it was my my passion. Then when I studied medicine, of course, I couldn't make up my mind to I want to become a cardiologist or a or a psychiatrist. So so I uh, loved studying it without exactly knowing what it was for, what kind of doctor I will become. And then mm -hmm. you know I was uh, on the heart transplant team as a senior student, and then later uh, specialized in something similar to psychiatry. It was called medical psychology and, and uh, uh, psychosomatic medicine. And um, that was very interesting. And then postgraduate, I did, uh, as you mentioned, some uh, uh, postgraduate degrees in psychiatry and, yeah. and so on. So it was quite interesting. And then I saw myself only as an academic for, for a long, long time. And uh, suddenly someone headhunted me to become the clinical director of an employee assistance program down in London. I was at that time in the north. I was practicing and teaching at various universities. I had no idea what that strange abbreviation meant. And I thought, how isn't that interesting? And I studied thoroughly for a week and turned up for that interview and suddenly started telling people what I think it should morph into. And I was hired on the spot. <laughs> and um, that was fantastic, actually. And it's still a regret of mine because I recently spoke to a footballer last um, week, actually, that I at the same time had to say no to an invitation by an agent of Manchester United to do some psychological work with them because, as I said, I was based in the north. And um, and so so one thing happened after the other. And, you know, and I was running a couple of global EAPs soon, also from a commercial perspective. and And then... A headhunter turned up on behalf of Mercer and said, well, I was asked to find a doctor with substantial business experience, and you are the only one I can think of who has that weird combination. And, and there I am, having worked for Mercer now for a long time, and it's so fresh. I'm still enjoying every day of it. I've never stayed anywhere as long as I have here, and, and, um, and so I'm moving in January to an even more global role than I currently have and building a, a, a world-class center of excellence for mental health. So I, I can't wait to get started with that one. Congratulations. That's so exciting. And it's very rare for people these days to, to 
have the alignment in the context of the corporate world to stay in one in, in one company for so long and still be so passionate about about it. So I think yeah, I, I think it is it is a privilege to be able to to play to your strengths and to work where you are so emotionally engaged and. And at the same time, probably my friends would say, well, because you have always only chosen what you really like, right? Because even when I was teaching at universities, my ex-girlfriend was saying, you know, oh, you only say yes to subjects that you are really intrigued by. Like I was teaching brain and behavior at some stage or mental health and, 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 and social stigma and that sort of thing. And... Um, Yes, I, I took that luxury, I think, to say yes to what I want and no to what I didn't want. And uh, none of that ever had to do with money, really. All had to do with success and passion. Uh, and and such an important point, you know, that connection to what to ourselves in the context of the workplace. And I, I'd love to dive into this now from a, um, discussing the topics that are on top of the agenda for organizations right now. What What are they? Uh, from your perspective? You know, um, many people ad hoc would still say mental health, but I think um, the cost of living crisis is about to overtake uh, mental health, uh, the high inflationary environment we live in, and organizations are really struggling what to do in that context because, you know, they are worried that it's quickly turning into a conversation about uh, compensation packages only, or that there is not enough grit in the services that are on offer. But also because we have data that shows that talking about financial worries is probably even more stigmatized than talking about mental health, because we have made some significant strides in mental health over the last decade or so. And it is now about um, 51% of employees who say they are comfortable talking about mental health at work. And if you compare that to um, financial well-being, it's only about 36%. And so the data is now over a year old, so it will probably be in the process of changing. Mm. And if you benchmark that against something else stigmatized, it's now 50% of people who say they are comfortable talking about sexual orientation at work. So, so that is, is, is the, the stigmatized aspects of things. And I think we cannot evade the cost of living crisis, which is inextricably linked to mental health anyway. I, Absolutely, I, one precedes the other. Yes, and I can't understand for the life of me while we are still caught up in those pillars, right? I mean, and it's us doctors who are responsible for that, the Cartesian dualism of having sort of uh, built hospitals for bodies without minds and others for minds without bodies makes no sense because we yeah. always experience both at the same time and social well-being as well. And, you know, uh, if you look at long COVID, I think it has hit home to the majority of people now that disease entities or categories are always capturing a mental aspect and the physical aspect at least, aren't they? Who is to say uh, which one is more dominant in in long COVID, for instance, or if you look at uh, something that you know so much more about, which is trauma, of course, you know, trauma mm -hmm. is is a big issue that has, of course, morphological co correlations. And I remember, again, years back when it was not that uh, evident yet to the majority of readers that 
you know, I was uh, at Harvard at Boston at the time, and there was a study coming out, nothing to do with me, of course, uh, called does uh, uh, brain damage, uh, that does, does stress damage the brain, right? And the, the first correlations were found, and you saw the, the structural changes in, in the parts of the brain that capture memory and so on. It is uh, an obvious one nowadays that we mustn't also in organizations to sort of make a link back to where the question really started. We mustn't uh, uh, conceptualize our people as only mental health and there's a program running which doesn't know anything about the physical or social well-being programs and therefore they are either cancelling each other out or running in parallel and, and so on and so forth. And maybe one other point I would want to make, I mean, people have uh, probably picked up, of course, on the trauma debate. And I am moving it now from the depths of scientific knowledge that you have, Ruth, to a sort of more general level of discourse. And there is that conversation that even some psychologists have led to say we are all in a collective post-traumatic stress disorder environment now, which I don't agree with because PTSD is a very well-defined um, category that you can look up in the DSM or in the ICD. And um, that is and should be reserved to describe people who have been at the face, the cold face of huge trauma, like in the war zone or a terrorist attack or, dare I say, rape or, or, or uh, domestic abuse and so on, which, which have risen in, in prevalence. And um, that is something that would become a bit meaningless for those people if everyone now, every single person, you and I and everyone else who is listening, was considered to be in a post-pandemic PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder scenario. However, we are, of course, collectively bruised. And if you call it traumatized, that's fine. I just don't think it meets the criteria of PTSD per se, but that we are all bruised and that we are having brain fog. Many in this middle group, as Adam Grant describes it, that, that uh, group that is languishing and is between the bookends, if you like, of those who are still flourishing or flourishing more than ever, and another group of people who are uh, probably depressed. So, so that yeah. would be one comment on that. I think I'd love to dive into that just a little bit because you mentioned stress and we talked about, you know, the importance of sprinting initially. But when we think about stress, often we think about it in the context of mental stress and it falls into the bucket of mental health. But we have emotional stress. We have physical stress. We have spiritual stress where we're misaligned and it's stressful in the context of our workplace because we're completely misaligned with our core values, beliefs and direction of travel in the context of our purpose um, uh, and we have the mental stress which is the cognitive load that we're experiencing um, often that's the one that we take the time to focus on but we don't tend to correlate them all together because we we have we have a bucket and those buckets will fill up and eventually our whole, whole holistic or integrated stress bucket um, will be full and it will flow over. Some people's physical bucket gets filled up and overflows and they can't deal with the physical um, pain or stress that they're experiencing. Some people, their emotional bucket will flow, uh, overflow and they'll experience an um, overwhelm or a, or a breakdown of some sort or, or it may be labelled as PTSD depending on what the root cause 
is and the symptoms they're expressing. But we are all under certain degrees of stress. And, that you know, you mentioned earlier financial stress um, and people don't like to talk about it because it, it has a label associated with it that we ought to be able to provide for um, our family and ourselves. And it's difficult to talk about it, isn't it? in the context of I'm really stressed (laughs) about and then pick all of the aspects of stress that you're experiencing uh, to get an understanding as to how full are people's stress buckets and when are they about to overflow is that something that you 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 know feel or experience in in your workplace that there's different these different buckets um, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, all the organizations we work with on a systemic level, of course, try to organize their health and well-being programs along those buckets. Some have more, some have fewer of those buckets. And um, and that's a good start, as long as it doesn't lead to absolute silos, because those um, silos, of course, would be uh, unhelpful in that context, as you rightly mentioned, because, you know, I have not met anyone who said uh, when they were stre- instead of saying I'm stressed or I am anxious or I I feel tense in my body that they say oh it's my prefrontal cortex or <laughs> or something like that right so we we have those uh, monocausal uh, explanatory models of just saying oh it's just one neurotransmitter or it's this part of the brain or another when we reflect on it and yet the reality is more complex in the way you describe it. And I do like your four-pillar model, which is uh, basically biopsychosocial plus spiritual. Yeah. And you could add to that now financial well-being, if you like, even though you could have it under social. You could even, as we sometimes do, add intellectual well-being or environmental and occupational well-being in a corporate setting, which I'm sure we will be talking about a fair bit. So, so yes, I do find that people... Um, um, experience it in this complex way and and don't always have a vocabulary for it, which is a shame because I think the complexity of it is just seemingly a complexity because it also shows a route out, if you like. While I was listening to you, I was thinking, yeah, okay, if that's the case, that you have all those sensations in your body and in your emotions and in your mental being and so on, it gives you also a route out. For instance, you know, we did talk about it to begin with, that being stressed is something we want to, of course, um, tackle at the root cause uh, of that stress. But we sometimes also need to have good practical routines of burning off that excess cortisol or adrenaline or whatever name you want to give the stress hormones. And and that is exercise as well, because that helps you burn off that excess cortisol and 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 people just feel it when they are doing it. I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't face up to the emotional pressures and deal with them as well, but some of it is in that day-to-day routine. And so I always tell our clients that they must have an integrated health and well-being program that doesn't split people and because they are supposed to conceptualize human beings in their entirety. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I'd love to, you know, in the, you know, you mentioned COVID. What were the key lessons that organisations have learned through um, the pandemic? And and have they been translated into the workplace properly? Yeah, good point. And and perhaps it's a good point now, if you don't mind showing that um, those couple of slides that I, that I sent you. And um, just to, 
to chat that through a little bit because visuals are always good. And um, just for people who, who don't look at it, who are only listening, I'm describing it uh, carefully now. On the left-hand side, you see my whole model. And on the right-hand side, I'm just splitting in uh, those that model into two entities. And, and that's all there is so that I can, for ease of, of reference to it. I think we have learned during the pandemic that multi-stakeholder conversations are needed because employees, if we go back to the original slide, please, that would be, yeah, that's where we are. That would be great. Um, multi-stakeholder conversations are needed. And, you know, it used to be me uh, pushing for that. But during the pandemic, it was actually clients pulling um, into that direction. And they were saying, hey, we have a real problem here. What are we doing with working from home? How we are transitioning people back into the office? What are we doing with flexible working? Why is it that we only talk about white collar jobs when we talk about flexible working and we don't talk enough about blue collar environments? How can we combat the great resignation? How can we make relationships with employees stickier? You know, suddenly it was not just the health and well-being director in the room, but there was the HR director, the person in charge of flexible working, the person in charge of ESG and diversity, equity and inclusion. So what we have learned, in my humble opinion, and you will see it sort of very loosely associated with Maslow, but it is quite different as well, is mm -hmm. I think that the workplace realized that we need to provide a physical envi working environment that's safe for people. And um, that also is intriguing how we are moving back into the workplace now, completely neglecting very often uh, neurodiversity challenges and saying, oh, we only need collaboration spaces and this is the, the, the new way forward. When in fact, some people need a predictable desk and a predictable space. And of course, it's just a minority, but when you use design thinking and you learn from design thinking which has entered business schools a long while ago but started of course in in real design um you will learn or will you will hear that if you design only for the mean you will lose quite a few of your employees whereas if you design for outliers the mean will automatically fall into place mm. then you need access to the natural environment we learned that during the pandemic you know people who didn't have access to Green spaces suffered more than others. And uh, there's this wonderful tool in Japanese psychotherapy, which they call forest bathing. Yeah. So it's just going into the forest. It, the forest, it doesn't mean taking a bath in the forest, but really enjoying the, the closeness to, to nature. And then there's the big ESG conversation, which I indicated here as sustainability. And then we come to a point that um, probably Ruth you um, have talked about so many times that it might become ever so slightly boring, but I guess we both can't stop talking about psychological safety because if I talk about safety on the next level, I mean compensation, which is now more important than ever. So the, that cost of living crisis emerged after I wrote this slide, actually. And so we need to give people basic uh, financial security, but also physical, as I discussed, psychological safety now is something much more than that. You could yeah. argue that the new ISO standard uh, of psychosocial uh, well-being in the workplace covers it fully. And I love that standard because it has been written in exactly the same way as physical safety. And it mm -hmm. gives me hope that mental health has now finally reached parity with physical health and safety, which is really important. 
But the psychological safety concept, going back to Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School, in my opinion, is more progressive than that. It's not just a defensive concept that talks about don't trip people up physically and psychologically at work, because imagine what would happen if you work, walk into the workplace and there were health hazards all the way and they trip you up physically or they trip you up psychologically. What do they? Because if you look at the research that suggests that a huge percentage of people, whether it's 40% uh, in the last year or 60% over the lifetime of their career or somewhere in between, uh, there is many studies on that, actually do feel that their workplace is psychologically harming them to some degree. We are not going to work to get psychologically injured. We are going to work to flourish. So psychological safety takes us beyond that point of not getting injured because it is that wonderful concept of feeling that uh, the team you are working in, working in is safe for interpersonal risk-taking, where you can truly bring your whole self to work. A phrase yeah, that never yeah. It's so important. I, I, you know, bringing your true self to work is so important. And it ties into all of the other aspects that you spoke about in terms of neurodiversity uh, and sexual preferences and, and so on. It's, it's just being, being able to show up as who you are and express yourself in, in the way that you, you know, you feel safe to express yourself. And I thought, you know, bring your whole self to work never mean, meant that much when it was used by HR professionals until I think it was improved by thinking of Amy Edmondson because psychological safety means what you say is meaningful, is accepted, you will not be ridiculed, and you can make mistakes. And that was the paradox because not mm. everyone remembers when we talk about psychological safety that the hypothesis that drove Amy to begin with was that assuming that highly performing teams make fewer mistakes than lower performing teams. And yet the empirical evidence was to the contrary. And that's when the theory of psychological safety was born. Because if you are able to make mistakes, own up to them, you move on much more quickly and you are much more successful. And then there was this brilliant Google research across the globe, you know, in hundreds of teams finding that psychologically safe teams outperform their targets by 17%, whereas those with low psychological safety missed them by 19%. I'm just throwing that in because still I feel I need to justify to our business audience that what we are talking about today, you and I, Ruth, is based in hardcore data and it has a business relevance to it and it is not fluffy science in the slightest. No. So then we... We move on and we will, I'm sure, come back to psychological safety because it's such a brilliant concept. We move on to flexible working. And I always challenge myself and in think tanks that I surf on, why do we always conceptualize white collar people when we talk about flexible working and then we say about working from home and so on? It's not just where you work. It's also when you work and how you work and who does the work. And that will hopefully help us a little bit to think about how can we afford a similar flexible approach to a, a supermarket checkout assistant as we do to a so-called knowledge worker. And, um, and not everybody wants to work from home. I referenced the building industry to begin with. Many of our uh, colleagues would have said, oh, I don't want to sit in a stuffy office like you are. I'm rather out there on the construction site in the sunshine and so on. So, you know, Equality doesn't mean giving exactly the same thing to everybody, but having 
outcomes in mind and those outcomes need to be being able to work and able to love. I didn't think I would throw that in, but that's a quote from Sigmund Freud. Mm-hmm. And um, I just love that so much because the work-life balance discourse is is out of kilter. It's a tug of war between 49% of one and 51% of the other and 100% feeling guilty because you never satisfy your own aspirations of doing one or the other domain correctly. Whereas if you look at outcomes, am I doing a good enough job that I'm able to to work, that I'm able to love? These are two different discourses with the world. The former discourse with work is about who is the fastest sprinter, if you like, from A to B, who can solve a problem most quickly. It's a directional, clean line that Mm -hmm. is satisfying, that leaves a legacy in the world. This is what we need to transcend our being when we, by contrast, Forget about the really important meandering discourse with the world, which is about love, you know, then we are just one dimensional. We need both dimensions in our in our life to feel happy because you can't give a spreadsheet to your toddler in the morning and say, fill it out. I will check on you when I come home tonight. <laughs> that discourse wouldn't work. Or when you are... Um, you know, quoting someone, it's a meandering, flirtatious process and human beings need both. And human beings need a certain amount of control because we are no, we know from research that the best inoculation against stress is having some locus of control inside ourselves over the basic workflow. That's a big frontal. Yeah. So, 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 you know, so this is where this, this conversation is going and then it, it lifts itself up to something higher. And I shouldn't linger too long on that because we still have one more item to go, but then we are reaching the point of good work. And what is good work? I'm a huge advocate of not seeing work as the enemy and health and well-being programs that are only trying to be um, a buffer against disaster don't make sense to me. Yes, we need to have safety in place, but we need to also be able to uh, conceptualize work as the good it does to our well-being. And, you know, um, it's, uh, I always hesitate to mention that research example because I know it affects so many people. But, but why we know that work is good for us is because uh, people who have been uh, made redundant against their will in a, in a brutal way or however have psychological scars sometimes measurably years later. And so we know that work contributes to our sense of self and to, to our fulfillment. So um, so that's why good work is important, but it mustn't be this type of work that trips you up psychologically or physically. Yeah. And then you um, a- approach something via psychological safety that you may call inclusion, which is more important than diversity because diversity follows inclusion after you have been able to show evidently that you are an inclusive organization and then you foster a sense of, um, of belonging. Yeah, I think that's such an important point that you raised there. And I think it's, you know, going back to the training that often programs, some programs can do uh, for people in the well-being context is to try and build resilience to deal with what is in essence a toxic culture and a, a toxic environment that people are working in. And it And you can't build resilience in that context. You have to change the environment because it's not suited to the people that are working for you and you have to be more adaptive and more inclusive and a comp like you mentioned is accommodate uh, everybody's needs and make it a place where people can thrive rather than they're surviving 
I couldn't agree more with you. And um, people will from now on probably pay more attention to what I subtly uh, smuggle into uh, workshops very often when I do them in a corporate setting, where I do point that out, how important the systemic element is and also how important it is for managers. And, and God bless them. I love managers and I am one myself. Uh, being in a sandwich uh, position between pressure from above and pressure from below. But managers often can also um, have shortcomings and, 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 and they need to role play and learn a bit more how to free themselves up, to be authentic, to be potentially even vulnerable in order to role model. And, um, and so I do sometimes point out uh, some uh, mistakes that we make and I try to make them with a sense of humor so that no one feels offended like you know by saying things like if you don't listen to people around you you will end up surrounded by people who have nothing to say or or, or all those other paradoxical things that people like frankly also described very well actually the mistakes that we are making of more of the same and and what hasn't worked in the past and 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 that kind of thing so I if, think that's so important, though, isn't it? Is is having those conversation about the mistakes? Is going back to building high performing teams? Is if we don't take the time to reflect and give ourselves permission to make the mistakes, then we can't re- learn from them. Yes, and and also, what's wrong with a bit of empathy? I mean, why be so draconian? Why be so hierarchical when you get so much more out of yourself and people by letting them contribute? You know, and I remember many years ago, I actually uh, said in a a team meeting once, I said, look, you know, why don't you have your meetings without me? Because you don't need me to guide you because you know what to do. And people said, no, no, we need you to make decisions. But, you know, what I achieved unwittingly before it became fashionable is actually empowering people. And then in the future meetings, people just came with proper suggestions, thought through suggestions to me. Oh God, I didn't have much to do anymore because the team was producing it. And if we are not playing to our strengths and if we are just looking for carbon copies of ourselves, we will have a less effective team. And I just, you know, everyone now knows that health and well-being is the new frontier in the diversity, equity and inclusion discourse, as I call it. And everyone knows that teams are stronger when they are younger and older and and different ethnicities and, and and different genders in the team and so on, right? But what is often overlooked, at least I find it fascinating as an academic, uh, uh, is that um, diverse teams also in terms of diverse educational backgrounds are much mm-hmm. better at problem solving than those monolithic uh, teams that might just all be Ivy League graduates. They are not as good as being mixed up with people who don't have a degree or from or a different type of education. So I think that's fascinating. And if just uh, for the benefit of wallpaper to our conversation, you don't mind flipping over uh, mm-hmm. just one thing, then I would probably talk here very quickly also about purpose because you said, you know, how people and managers are often missing the point and uh, not providing the environment that people need to thrive. Um, I had such a funny example recently where somebody was saying, oh, you know, expenses are high, we should travel only with purpose. My goodness, that's not what purpose means, right? It's not about curbing expenses. You can do that along the way because any good business will only have the necessary expenses. Purpose washing is now something that comes from the top and everyone has to fall into line. That's not what the concept means. The concept is that if you like a subtle 
uh, and boom negotiation of meaning between uh, the manager and the colleague. And that's what we uh, discussed earlier as well with a sense of control because purpose on the one hand is such a wonderful thing and it actually, people are surprised by that, has a measurable impact on your health. People with high levels of purpose live longer and they have better cognitive health even in mm -hmm. the sense of pushing the onset of Alzheimer's a little bit further down the line. So no one is saying it prevents Alzheimer's, but it pushes it pushes it a bit further down the timeline, if you like. So purpose on the one hand, but then there's control on the other hand. And there is a healthy tension between the two. There is me having control over me and the way how I want to make this organization flourish. It's not a selfish endeavor. And the way how you want to make this organization flourish. And we then surround ourselves with like-minded people and we create purpose together, which is not uh, something I write into my marketing uh, strapline at the beginning of the year and it will last me for 10 years. It's a constant negotiation of meaning. It's a co-creation, if you like, and that co-creation leads to what we call good work. And mm. unfortunately, just to read a couple of items more from this slide for our audience who is listening, I uh, just want to say as well, you know, what does that mean as a consequence? It also means personalization. It means that it's not too much to ask as a manager to get to know your people as individuals without being intrusive, I hasten to add, because the bring your whole self to work should never be an excuse to be intrusive. But personalizing, you ought to know who likes to work in the middle of the night and who doesn't and send your emails accordingly. So a draconian measurement, unfortunately, of switching servers off exactly at 6 p.m. doesn't work because people have different needs, different carer responsibilities and so on. So personalization. And different cognitive uh, performance at different times of the day. Yeah. Depending on, on what they've done throughout the day. Yeah. Very, very good point. And, you know, personalization is the direction of travel for benefits uh, consultants. But personalization, and again, that's something that um, Dr. Ruth has uh, so much to say about, and I don't know if we have time about, uh, for that, is also at the root cause of precision medicine of everything that's happening in the medical paradigm. It's slowly shifting. It's not as exciting as it may sound in some papers, but but that's what's happening. You know that we we can look at the genetic code looking a bit different over the years. We call it epigenetics, the way how our environment influences our genome, how it corresponds between um, you know the gut health and the brain health and all the rest of it. I find that fascinating and I love it because I never wanted to be just the victim of my genes. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's so important that we take more of a focus on that personalised approach um, at every level, you know, at a cognitive level, at a physical level, which we do in from a di disability perspective, uh, from a neurodiversity, from an orientation perspective, it, is that we find the right environment, as you mentioned, for people to thrive at a personal level. And when you thrive at a personal level, you, th you thrive at a group level and, and, and ultimately at corporate level. Yeah. 
So I think we we have done justice maybe to this to this mm-hmm. slide now, and uh, we can take it anywhere we want from here, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is a good place to be because we set some sort of groundwork for those who are kind enough to still follow us. <laughs> so I'd love to know, sort of diving into um, the new frontier that we talked about. What is it that you think is missing currently between understanding how we are performing in the workplace? And also on the the context of brain health or cognitive performance, because they're not yeah, really fully connected at the moment. No, are they? they are not fully connected. And and you know, if I may start with the baby stuff in my uh, discipline, if if I may, um, absolutely. It has to be, be data driven health and well being strategies, and you have more data sets than you are consciously aware of whether it's your claims ratios from private medical insurance or your demographic data or your data from long-term disability or income protection, your EAB data, your occupational health data, your on-site clinic data. All these data sets in isolation tell you a different story. But if you triangulate them and look, uh, cross-reference them, you get the true story of health. So uh, you find out that probably in your PMI, the most frequently claimed for is musculoskeletal, but in your long-term disability or income protection, it may be mental health that has overtaken that. And then you have shades in between. I'm so lucky to work across the globe. And I find that, you know, in places where there is even more stigma about mental health than in the Anglo-American culture, you, you get anecdotally told that it is so important, but then you don't find it in the data because it's buried, for instance, in MSK, in musculoskeletal data, because yeah. it's a uh, face-saving culture. And sometimes you don't know, is it the weight of the world on my shoulders that was the thing that came first, or is it my back pain that made me depressed as a secondary phenomenon? So those things come together. And those things, just to get that out of the way, they can be measured, they can be dashboarded, they can be logical, they can be simple. And you then have a line in the sand and you can measure what your so what um, uh, strategy has achieved. Because you can then look, oh, I have a musculoskeletal pathway. I have a mental health pathway. And that's one of those I did. You know, you then see 9% reduction in number of claims, 16% reduction in cost of claims, 41% reduction in absence associated with that disease category. In this case, it was a mental health pathway or 60% improvement in therapy outcomes. So we have a blueprint for what needs doing. When it now comes to cognitive health, then we have to disentangle it a little bit from those people who mix it up with mental health, because as, mm-hmm. as, as you said, Ruth, it's, it's a different animal to some degree. And so we have a blueprint for pathways. So I think it's not rocket science, even though I have to say, I'm thinking back a couple of years when an organization that does a lot of research into cognitive health, but also offers very good cognitive health assessments was saying to me, oh, we can't, uh, you know, offer any form of pathway because there is no, no treatment, which of course is no longer true. And which you know is no longer true. So um, it's, It's wonderful to know that actually there is treatment, uh, particularly in the sense that uh, we know now um, that um, it is to do with your blood perfusion in in the brain, for instance. It's a lot to do with um, uh, infections or inflammations leading maybe to autoimmune reactions. It can have a little bit or a bit bit more in other people to do with genetics, uh, trauma, toxins. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, blood pressure, uh, sleep. Let's not forget sleep because that's something that empirically we can research ourselves. When we don't sleep well, we just know that we are not at our best. And if you don't sleep well for a long time, uh, it becomes painful. And if you don't sleep very well, again, you see you are hardwired neurologically to crave carbohydrates in the morning and eat high caloric foods. If you do that long enough, you might even predispose yourself to diabetes type 2, which, by the way, is another risk factor for, for cognitive health. So, <laughs> so you see it's all linked up, right? So it's it's fascinating. And and then if people think that's complicated, I used to say to them always, look, it's not as bad as you think because addressing those issues will address all your chronic conditions to some degree. And, we, you know, everyone was shocked years ago when the research came out that uh, about 40% of the etiology of cancer is rooted in, in, in behavior as well and in lifestyle choices. So even cancer it has modifiable risk factors and they it's are almost luckily, the same actually yeah i think they're luckily enough the same yeah. right <laughs> so it just expresses your body expresses it somewhere else sometimes it expresses it in your mind sometimes it expresses it physical pain and sometimes it expresses it you know in changes to your cell structure so if i was to um continue now with the sort of more difficult element of your question how do you deal with um uh, cognitive health in organizations and I don't ever avoid issues because I love a good debate as you know. <laughs> I think the cognitive health pathway hasn't evolved yet because A, people are very busy with other pathways if you like. B, because they are wondering just like this highbrow research organization what can we actually offer and yeah. we have just addressed that you and I Ruth in, in what we said but also from an HR point of view, what do I do with it? If I find out that the chief executive or some someone else has got some sort of early onset um, dementia or cognitive impairment or, or the chief scientific officer or chief technology officer, you know, people, all of us are very responsible and important. I don't buy into the model of saying, um, you know, uh, some are more important than others. And I don't even believe that about doctors, because if you construct a bridge, I mentioned the bridge before, people can also die. It's not just doctors who make decisions about life and death. If you are a bus driver, you certainly hold many lives in your hands. Absolutely. So, so many different professions do that. Yeah. And ultimately, all of us in some way or another, because if you're a teacher, you know, your impact on vulnerable children is enormous and your opportunity to make them fly and thrive is is, is wonderful so mm -hmm. so so the so hr of course would be struggling to find a way of helping this individual and 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 not um uh, you know punishing them or, uh, or in in some ways or, or performance manage them in the wrong way so i think a cognitive um, health pathway is Due. I deliberately don't say overdue because I don't want to make it sound like it's five minutes to midnight because it isn't. Um, but the principles of it are not as much rocket science as people think. So it could be a pathway. You need policies. You need screening for it. You offer <clears throat> health screening anyway. Why not also give people an opportunity to screen for cognitive well-being or cognitive health? Then you decide how much of that is super confidential and probably all of it because that's what your health screening normally is. You are not 
having a link from your screening provider to your HR department. And then you look into the most important question because only having data is nothing unless you do something that impacts people's health and well-being. Then you look into the typical steps of prevention and therapy where there is a therapy available. And then, of course, you are aware that um, you have someone at low risk, you do nothing, they move to medium risk, you do nothing, they move to high risk, and then they become claimants of tomorrow. Ah, the finance director will say, now I get interested because my private medical insurance costs are very high. So once you have discussed with insurance companies how much you can squeeze their premium, then you only have one big thing left, which is wrapping your arms around claims. And that means prevention more than anything yeah. else. So I think that pathway could work. And it is no more complicated than a cardiovascular pathway. No, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I don't I, I think the pathway is certainly the you know the approach that, that I use in the in the context of the clients that I serve are applicable across every generation. Um, they might need to be tweaked, but you know, in the context of prevention, you have to start early because you're not preventing when you are uh, risk mitigating. Uh, when there's an issue or it's not it's it's addressing the issue because somebody is is about to leave the firm because of of health problems so I think it's really important that people reframe the conversation and reframe their approach uh, to to prevention is a very different uh, kettle of fish than it is the than treatment absolutely God, um, Ruth, I can't believe how time is flying. I'm having so much fun still. So um, you, you are in charge of timekeeping. So make sure that we only talk about uh, what fits into the program. But, um, but I, I, wanted to, I, I know we've only got a few more minutes left, but we can go over a bit, bit, a bit. I really want to talk about the data piece because you mentioned that people have got all of this data. But as we went to the same conference, the Mad World Summit, is there's, the, there's this element of data fatigue that's going on within the workplace as people are capturing data, but it's not actually translating into performance improvement in the workplace. It's just acting as a, as a reporting tool rather than an informing and changing tool. What is it that needs to change in that context to shift us from the 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 reporting that we've got a problem to we're now preventing the problem happening in the first place? I think we are still hooked on the notion of big data when okay. in fact all we need is meaningful data. So that uh -huh. is the first uh, relief for everyone who is listening, I think, that we don't need to look into everything. And where we do look into the quantitative data, I mentioned to you what they are and how they can be triangulated. It's not as difficult as it sounds. It can be done uh, quite easily. But let's also not forget that there is, in the name of meaningful data, a few more items you may want to consider that are probably closer to your heart. And one of them would be qualitative data. So I think employee listening exercises, particularly in digital focus groups, has now become easier than ever before. So you can have up to a thousand people online at the same time. It takes just 45 minutes to facilitate a digital focus group. And then you get really 
good, colorful, uh, qualitative data as well to balance your quantitative data. Mm -hmm. And you can do lovely things in the digital focus group because you can, A, as a facilitator, stay out of it, of course, and just offer questions to people. But you can occasionally then also run a poll and say, who agrees that this is important that you just mentioned? A bit like a word cloud, you know, what comes up as important you can put to the test and ask people. Or you can even play a, a sort of a statistic psychologist by giving people those binary choices, right? Where you give them two things they love and they just have to choose one of them or two people they hate, there are two mm -hmm. items they hate and you have, and they have to choose just one of them. So, but most importantly, you just ask open-ended questions and you get good color. That's one item I would say. The other one is of course, you may have a good health and well-being strategy because you ought to have these days. You actually should also find a metric to report to your board because your board is probably being asked very soon, if they haven't been asked already, to report publicly on the metric of health and well-being or, you know, if you like, human capital accounting because it is fashionable, but it is also very needed. And it comes under the ESG agenda, if you like, under the S, under sustainability, sustainable workforce. And don't mm -hmm. forget that, you know, um, the, your risk conversation is not just about uh, finance risk and infrastructure risk. It's also about operational risk. And people sit under that as the essence of what keeps your organization going. And under people risk, there sits, of course, health and engagement, which both together equals productivity, as I say in my sort of humble pseudo-scientific equation here, sort of mm -hmm. health plus engagement equals productivity. And then one other data set I would wish to throw in, which is not new at all, that I've used for a long time, but it is still not as popular as it should be, knowing that the tools you are using are sharp enough. It's not enough just to say, oh, I have a health and well-being strategy that reads phenomenal. And yes, it is biopsychosocial and all the rest of it. And it has a few more beautiful decorations on it. And now I'm offering people a bowl of fruit and so on. There is no evidence for that being really impactful directly on people's um, cognitive or cardiovascular health per se. So you would want to had to know that your tools are sharp enough. So if you have a counseling service, you would want them to use counselors who are trained and have outcomes and that, that has been evidenced. So not going into too much more detail, but it was a huge pleasure many years ago to introduce such an evidence-based model into the EAP industry. And the EAP industry was shocked and the doctors also in a different context were shocked that you need a tool to measure outcomes because I'm a doctor, I know you have improved or you haven't, right? That is 20th century science, not 21st century. I so, so agree with you there. I just want to pause you there because I so find it amazing that people don't me measure the performance outcomes of the interventions that they take in a medical context. Yeah. So they could be completely, you know, prescribing medication after medication to try and get a person well, but never actually monitoring that person's improvement. They just switch switch a prescription and the person's constantly reporting but it's never logged indeed indeed yeah so you know and it should be um part of uh, the competency framework of a manager i'm afraid to put some uh, uh extra burden on managers to to you know to have the most basic competency of checking in with their colleagues whether they are well or not well none mm -hmm. of them expects them to do any counseling in fact they shouldn't but 
what they should be doing is to meet people with empathy and then just facilitate a referral to a known route that exists within your health and well-being strategy, then you can wash your hands. And then you will not fall into this category of 62% of managers, according to a survey we have done with BITC and YouGov, who say that they had to put the organization above the well-being of their employees from time to time. Right. So that's what 62% of managers say about wow, their that's own experience. A lot. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, they don't say all the time, but from time to time. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that is really an indicator that they struggle. But then you have a similar high percentage of managers who say, I really haven't received any decent impactful training on spotting the early warning signs of mental health. So I think those uh, data sets are enough for us to know what we want to do next in a corporate environment. Mm. I think that's so important, isn't it? And, and you know, for, for me, being a manager in another, another organization is to make, to not, just because somebody is a certain grade or a certain role doesn't mean that they're able to manage a workload that they're given in that role. And it's being aware when they when people are struggling that you need to bring it to people's attention and 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 give them the right support that they need uh because you're the... i think you you put your finger on something very interesting and i know it's late but i'm mentioning it anyway because you just said you know just because someone is a certain grade or has a certain qualification one shouldn't assume they also have qualifications in in, in human conversation if you like I think that's so interesting. It reminds me of my other life as an academic. You know, there was that big discussion. Shall we have professors who only teach and professors who only do research? It, it doesn't quite work that way because if you haven't done any original research, you are not very credible as a teacher and so on. But, you know, in the corporate setting, there have also been discussions. Oh, shall we have people managers and shall we have other managers? So there is a career path for you if you don't like people, you can still become high ranking. It just needs to be personalized. What's the right career path for you? And those of you who, who want to achieve a career by um, managing people, then really you have to like people. I'm sorry, you have to like people and you can learn to like them if you are not so inclined and you can mm -hmm. learn empathy. I have talked about empathy for the last so many years when people still said, oh, but empathy, you can't learn. This is something you are born with. No, no, no. Research says that those of us who have high levels of empathy benefit less from training than those who have low levels of empathy. How do you think we have ever uh, educated thousands of counselors? They are not all born with empathy. No, no, <laughs> no. We don't just wake. We don't just come out of the womb full, full of empathy. <laughs> it, it's taught as part of a life skill, um, and I think that's really important, isn't it? Because it comes back to our cognitive. Uh, or neurodiversity is, you know, it, it would be very challenging for some people who may be on the autistic spectrum uh, to put them in a managerial role, yet they'll excel in a technical role, typically. Um, some, some may excel in both. I'm just, I'm just taking a general perspective. Um, and likewise, people who are very social uh, creatures may, may, you know, not going to benefit from a hugely technical role that, that, you know where you're where on a racetrack rather than in the woods <laughs> soaking soaking up the the diversity of of the uh, people in the in the organization indeed and you know and you mentioned neurodiversity which we don't have time to go into that certainly is a new frontier that organizations have already discovered 
and uh, private medical insurers are waking up to the fact that uh, it's expected of them to cover at least the diagnostic phase. When it then comes to implementing change for that employee, that's a different story because some of it are tech tools and so on that sit in a different budget. But we are on the on the verge of getting those pathways uh, up and running as well. Yeah, and I think you know, going back to your original conversation, where we where typically when you look at data, people are, and in medical data, they're seeing this more and more that they look at the average, and the average isn't enough. It's not good enough. To look at the average data you need to look at the fringes and you need yeah. to understand the data set beneath it and, and get really meticulous and granular with with the information that you're capturing so and that you when know, you address the fringes you'll then start to address the whole yeah sorry to to, to interrupt you there I, I i'm the eternal optimist i also think that you have to look at the opportunities here because some companies have actually discovered that by specifically reaching out to uh, uh, neurodivergent uh, employees, they are actually benefiting enormously because, you know, their skills to everything we do and everything we are. And being neurodivergent has, of course, huge advantages. The reason why I'm not rattling off those skills now and not mentioning those global companies that have specifically reached out to them is because I'm hesitant at the moment to sort of generalize. I really do not wish to sort of categorize too swiftly, but you all know what you are looking for and, and you will all see in your interview process who can offer you more of that and who offers you less of that. Mm, mm. And I, I know we're coming to time now and this shows all about brain health and unchaining your pain. What, what one piece, and I know we've covered so many topics, but what advice would you give to anyone who is struggling, let's, let's focus on cognitive health, is is getting the support in the workplace from a cognitive health and cognitive performance perspective? What would be your uh, key pieces of advice there? Yes, in the workplace, depending on how advanced and enlightened your workplace is, you will have somebody who is an advisor on, on cognitive health that you can either access through your occupational health, which is usually outsourced. And so if you, for instance, had a specific complaint, um, which is easier sometimes to uh, get referred for if you call it ADHD or you call it autism or Asperger and so on. But also if you just have a symptom, why diagnose it? You could talk about, you know, memory questions and so on. You know, you would be entitled in many organizations to access your occupational health advisor and they would be able to help you. But the other thing is if you if you don't want to do that straight away, put your toe in the water, go onto your online tools that you may have on a well-being platform or from the EAP. These guys are not just there to talk about depression. They are supposed to talk about anything and everything with you. They are not an expert on anything and everything, but they are a sort of good door opener and you can chat to them. And, and, you know, and if, if I were allowed to sort of stray more into my uh, psychiatry and psychotherapy area, I would say, you know, generally speaking, as a good piece of advice, I think in order to keep yourself, your, your, your psychological well-being maintained, so that's not quite cognitive, but it's well-being is the word we are talking about. Your company not there to make you happy. That's difficult for someone else to do unless you do it but they are responsible for your well-being to some degree and um, well-being is a bit like happiness in the sense that you don't attack it directly it's the side effect of a number of things that you do 
for instance, in the corporate setting, you know, if you are staying close to what gives you meaning, what gives you purpose, what constitutes good work, that is something that has a big impact on your um, well-being. Being psychologically aware, the basic psychological skills, that, by the way, I have just done four films on that, how you can do that just 10 minutes each, how can you spot um, psychological well-being or any problems in yourself. It's Again, it's not rocket science. Don't suffer from alexithymia. I'm deliberately turning it into rocket science now. That means that's how psych psychologists describe the inability to identify and describe emotions. It's allegedly quite common in us men. Don't forget to have fun. That's really important. Exercise. Uh, Ruth and I talked a lot about exercise to begin with. And forget about yourself sometimes. We had a lovely chat just five minutes before we went live, uh, how important it also is when you go running and so on and you, you forget about yourself. Uh, because, again, research would have it that you are happier being kind to others than receiving gifts. So that's also important, that you have hormones and neurotransmitters floating around your body that show that you are even happier giving a present than receiving one. And then, of course, you know, connect with nature and and um, be aware that, as uh, the Greek philosopher put it so well, Nikos Kazantzakis, who said, body, mind, and soul are made from the same clay. So don't neglect one at the expense of the other. So that really is important as well. And if you are at work, tackle discrimination. Stick your neck out occasionally, politely, on behalf of other people as well, because discrimination has shown to be super toxic in the workplace. So, you know, organizations need to have good DEI and ESG policies, but also believe in them, not just write them down and then learn from um, minority groups and learn from your body because your body is keeping the score of how well you are doing and, and you know, learning to collaborate. So I, yeah, I feel passionate about that, I think. Brilliant pieces of advice. And I, you know, I really echo all, all of those, particularly your body's keeping the score. So if your body is expressing stress, it's really time to take a pause, reflect, and write down what your stresses are and the red flags are for you and, and get some help and um from your workplace or or elsewhere. Wolfgang, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the show. I know we could talk for hours. <laughs> hours and hours because there's so much to talk about in the context of workplace well-being how can people get hold of you and learn more and maybe we'll post the video links if you can make them accessible that you mentioned on the absolutely on the, well, the, the pleasure is all mine because it was such such a wonderful experience to talk to you i would have never thought that we would be talking for more than an hour i thought we will run out of things to discuss very quickly but obviously we didn't and people can get hold of me via LinkedIn, which is very easy. Many people do that. Uh, you have to connect uh, that um, uh, on, on the on the sort of uh, display. Yeah, so it's on the banner at the bottom, and there'll be a link yeah. in, in the show notes. And, as and well. then, of course, you know, I mentioned the company I work for. It's called Mercer. And so if you just uh, use the Mercer website, you can also get in touch with us. Wolfgang, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I, I look forward to, to many more. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for being such a generous host. You're most welcome. Remember, this show is all about brain health, unchaining your pain. You are not stuck with the brain you have. You have the power to make it better. And Wolfgang's kindly, kindly been here to show us how. 
I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to like and share this episode and leave a review on my website or on Apple Podcasts. If you're looking for opportunities to optimise your brain health or unchain your pain from a past trauma, make sure you visit my website, www.ruthmaryallen.com and use the code PODCAST10 at checkout to get 10% off all programs. And always remember, you are not stuck with the brain you have. You have the power to make it better. You have the power to unchain your pain and optimise your brain power and performance so that you can win back energy and time doing what you love.